Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. Today's conversation, and it's one I really enjoyed, and I think you'll hear that as you listen through the interview, is a conversation with Michael Simmons and Manfred Abram, co-CEOs of Yonder Consulting. Now, their story and that of Yonder, I think, is a fascinating case study in how, by combining complementary skill sets and businesses with shared values, you're able to create something that is truly greater than the sum of its parts. Having worked closely together in their previous businesses, Michael in Populous, Manfred in Brandcap, they decided that to achieve the vision that they both had, they needed to bring their businesses together. Combining the market insights and research capability of Populous and its sister company, Populous Data Solutions, with the consulting capability of Brandcap. Now, fast forward to 2022, and they're a business of over 150 people with offices across London, New York, and Hong Kong. 
In this conversation, we dive into the Yonder journey and talk a lot about how they've been able to make this merger, this bringing together of their businesses a success and go deep into some really important topics that I know will help you in your consulting career. We talk about that merger, how they were able to successfully bring the businesses together and launch Yonder all during the pandemic, the challenges that both the merger and the pandemic caused them and how they as a team were able to overcome those. How Michael and Manfred are able to co-run the business as co-CEOs, something that I have seen rarely work in any consulting firm and something that we talk a lot about in terms of how they're able to make it a success. We go into the structures that they use and also their advice if you are thinking about doing this for your own consultancy. And finally, we talk about their approach to diversity and inclusion at Yonder, the practical steps that they have taken as a team and the advice that they would give if you are looking to create a more open conversation about diversity and inclusion in your consulting firm. As you'll hear, I had a great time speaking with Michael and Manfred. They were as warm and welcoming as they were open and honest. And we covered so much in such a short space of time. I hope you enjoy listening to this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. And with that said, please enjoy my conversation with Michael and Manfred. Michael, Manfred, welcome to the show. Well, hello. Hello. Thank you. Really looking forward to this conversation. I know prior to starting, we, we've covered a bit of ground. I'm looking forward to everything we're going to cover in the conversation. But for those who maybe don't know you, it'd be great if we could just kick off with your background and, and maybe for each of you, sort of your journey to yonder and how you got to where you are today. Are you going to stop, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> okay. They're very different, our journeys. So I started my sort of working life working in a, uh, a political think tank. And I ended up working for various um, government ministers as, special, as a special advisor. And by the time of the 1997 general election, I was working in Conservative Central Office. I was planning the election campaign, which went really well. Conservatives lost by 100 and something, large 100 and something. One of my jobs was, as well as planning the election, was working very closely with the research guys in trying to understand how our messages came across with voters. Not very well, but the job was to try and find out how best to articulate our message. And uh, I got really very interested, got very interested in that. And then after the election, you work in politics, there's not many options of what you might do with your career. You could go and become a member of parliament, which you know, a number of my friends did. I never really felt I wanted to do that. Or you go into lobbying, and I never really wanted to do that. But then when Labour won with such a large landslide, the opportunities to go into sort of communications roles actually sort of disappeared. So I had a job offer on the table, which I didn't really like, but I was probably going to take it. And then the election happened and the job offer went away. So didn't really know what to do next. So I hung around in politics for a couple of years. And then Andrew Cooper and I, Andrew, Andrew was responsible for the delivery of the research within the Conservative Party. Andrew Cooper and I had this thought that the kind of forensic approach that political parties take to understanding public opinion and trying to influence public opinion, that approach could be taken by businesses and trying to understand what would now be known as their sort of key, their key stakeholders. So we set up a business to try to achieve that. So that was a lot of work in researching the views of journalists, politicians, local authorities, et cetera, et cetera, NGOs, how they perceived big public corporations. 
we also, our, our big break was the Times fell out with their holster, who had been in place for a very long time, changed their methodology halfway through the campaign without telling the Times, and they, they were a bit sort of annoyed. Uh, and so we had this opportunity to go and pitch to become pollsters of the Times. And there were four of us at the time. Andrew, who understood the methodology really, really well, and I went and persuaded them that they should give us a go. And so we became pollsters of the Times for 10 years, which meant every month, at least, we had a front page news story about key issues. And this gave us a shop window. It enabled us to go and knock on doors and say, hi, we're the pollsters of the Times and we could help you understand your reputation. So that's how I got into this. So none of the sort of, um, I, I'm not a consultant uh, by background at all. Um, so um, my, my climb in consulting has been more of a, a single jump. <laughs> that could be the sister series to this, jumping consulting. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so we set up what was Populous. Populous grew over time. And I think we'll, we'll tell the story of then how Populous then joined with Brandcap and we became Yonder. That's me. That's me. Fantastic. Well, and Manfred, do you want to fill in the brand cap side of that story? <laughs> yeah, so my, my starting consulting was I just didn't know what to do with my life at all. Went to university, studied something that was totally useless, art history, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't have a particular talent. You know, some people know with 14 what they want to do. I didn't. And I kind of thought I wanted to go into production, film production, TV production. I got my first job at a company called Lambinan that did TV production as well as branding. So I started production assistant and that side was required in the business. I know this is very planned journey through strategy consulting. Right? And they were busy on the branding side. And so they said, could you help out? And totally fell in love with brand consulting and the strategy side of brand consulting. And I worked for different companies in the space from the partners to now the partners and Lambinet are actually one company called the Super Union. Then went to Wolf Orleans and then to Interbrand where I was head of strategy. And the more development happened with these organizations, the more it became business consulting rather than just brand consulting. And that I kind of always say I ran out of companies to work for, which kind of made me go and start my own business. With the Clifton, who was the chairman at Interbrand at that point, and with the backing of Populous. So we've always been connected in that sense. We can talk about the merger later. And we wanted to create a business consultancy that had a different flavor to what was out there, have a brand philosophy as its core, but then very much be passionate about numbers and how the business worked and try and bring customer insights into that, which kind of fast forward brings you somehow to yonder. But you can see my very considered journey through uh, consulting. Fantastic. Well, and it, it's obviously worked out well for you. So <laughs> don't plan it is what, all I can say. <laughs> I think that's the, the first bit of advice we've had for today's show. I think we've got a lot more coming. And I, I mean, you, you both teed it up there. And, and Manfred, you said you, you've always been connected to, to Populous. I guess, how, how, have you, how did that work? So did you two know each other from you know, your previous companies? Are you two, were you two friends? And, and you said, can we borrow some office space? And, and Michael had some sort of, yeah, how did, you, how did that first connection start? And There uh, might be like two different versions of that story, depending on <laughs> Michael's view and my view. Well, let, let's hear it and, and how, that how that early days started, because that obviously takes us to yonder and, and where we are now. So yeah, how, how did that come about? It was Rita. So Rita Clifton was the connection. So Rita had become chair of Populous 
I forget when, but she was chair popular for, for quite a while. And I could just tell over the years that she was getting more and more frustrated within one of the big networks and wanted to set up on her own. And every now and again, I got dragged out, invited to a nice cup of tea um, <laughs> with, with Rita to uh, meet somebody who she thought she might potentially go into business with. I think I think there were two others apart from I didn't you. I know that. Oh, my God. You were the third. Oh, see, this, I didn't know that. I didn't need to know that either. <laughs> it's a choice. And I, it, it never really worked with the, with the other people. Uh, I think as far as she was concerned, I, I was, you know, I was just an interested bystander at that point. Then she finally introduced me to, to Manfred and he and I got on very well straight away. Uh, and it was clear that Rita saw in him someone that he, she could really partner with in a way that I think the others, she wasn't so sure about. Yeah. So a, a similar t- version of the story. I didn't realize there had been two before. So I'm trying to not be grumpy about that. You definitely know one of them. You probably know two of them. Let's <laughs> take that offline. Um, I got frustrated in the same way as Rita probably got frustrated over time in working in the bigger networks. And I didn't think consulting was being done in the right way. And Rita left into Brian and said, if you ever want to, you know, if you ever really frustrated, let me know. And I'm like, actually, I'm frustrated now. <laughs> and we had a chat and she said, you should meet Michael. And I basically said, look, in consulting, to me, there are reasons. I'm not a born entrepreneur. This needs to be said. I like safety and knowing where the money comes from. And so for me, stepping out of the networks had always been stopped by wanting security. And that because I've done very well in them, it just, from a consulting perspective, didn't enjoy it as much. And I was always worried, if you start your own business, Whilst you're serving clients, you don't have enough time to go after new business. And as soon as you focus on new business, you're not serving your clients well enough. And I wasn't really interested in, I always say that, I know today that you don't do that anymore, apparently, but change the your ink cartilage in a printer. I was like, I'm not excited by that. I don't want to have anything to do with who pays the electricity in an office. It doesn't interest me. And Rita said, well, if someone else took all of this off you, and I said, well, in that case, let's have a chat. And she said, meet Michael and met Michael at the Ivy Club. Yes, we did. Michael was still having a glass of champagne in those days. And I've been changing the photocopier ink ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm going to pick up how your businesses then came together. But just because you mentioned it there, Manfred, and, and you know, a lot of the people who listen to this show will be people like yourself who are in you know, big firms, big networks. And I, it is quite a daunting thing to do going from a big brand, you know, to your point, with security to start your own. And one side of it is, yeah, you just didn't want to do the print change in the printer ink cartridges, but you mentioned the other, which is, is the sort of security part. How did you get yourself comfortable with that? Did Rita say, actually, we've got a pot of money and we can pay you? Or, or if not, how did you get comfortable with Michael that? Michael had a pot of money. <laughs> so uh, part of it was you, you don't want to start. And your clients are always the best at paying on time. You learn that very quickly in a big network. It's not as important in a big network, but when you're setting up by yourself, cash flow suddenly becomes something you think about, but you never think about that in a big company. I mean, someone might go, have you heard of cash flow? But it's not something that interests you when you're frontline consulting. And, and another bit that I was worried about was I like working on big difficult challenges will we get lots of small insignificant pieces of work because we're a startup and no one cares but that that was the other worry 
how did I get comfortable with it? I guess I believe that clients would want to carry on working with Rita and myself to a certain extent. And we had a number of people that we want to bring in the business straight away that we trusted, we'd worked with for years, we believed they were going to be great. And very quickly it became apparent that that was, that was the comfort. Yes, that was right. And in fact, a lot of people didn't want to work with me at that time because of the network I was in. And as soon as I left it, they were like, oh, here's a piece of work because you're now not, you know, no shackles from the background you were or, you know, the network that you're in. Fantastic. And, and just so I'm clear on the sort of the journey. So you mentioned that. So Michael, did your business incubate Brandcap? Were you, were you shareholders in the business? Yes, we were. So there were three shareholders, Manfred, Rita and, um, and Populous. So you know, we, and we saw the opportunity as Manfred has already mentioned, um, yeah, the approach that Rita and Manfred wanted to take was very evidence-based. They wanted to do consulting, which had some substance behind it and some evidence that they could point to. So that was an opportunity for populists to do interesting work with a consultancy. Yeah, we had grown to a size where we had some money to invest and we were looking for an opportunity to invest. And this just felt like a it felt like a, a sort of sensible first step. It wasn't. It wasn't sort of buying another sort of established business. It was you know, working with two entrepreneurs to help help set up. So we you know, together put together a business plan for Brandcap. We provided the office space and we provided some some sort of initial financial support, which was something which had been done for Matt, for Andrew and I when we first started. So we had yeah, there was there was somebody who supported the idea, backed us, gave us office space and sort of bankrolled us for a few months whilst we got our feet under the ground. So I think it's really important. It was very, very important to us as a populace. And I think it was, yeah, it's a great way to start, start a small enterprise. Part of the comfort obviously having, don't know, it was basically a, a rolling up to a certain amount of money saying, if you need it, it's there. We actually never needed the full amount because our clients were paying on time and they were there from the beginning, but it's good to know that you have that. So you don't have to worry. Definitely. And I think again, for anyone listening, it's a, it's an interesting avenue to explore if you want to launch your own business, but actually, like you say, have some of that security because yeah, going out with no no clients, no income, you've, you've got to have quite a lot of confidence to do that. And there's quite a lot of risk. You know, we'll talk about today's economic climate later, but, you know, if clients do pay late or clients go bust, suddenly that can, that can have a big impact. I think that fills in a little bit of the origin story for me then in terms of that you were sort of joined at the start, but obviously the businesses carried on in parallel and, and scaled quite significantly. Maybe to bring us to yonder, what was it that made yourselves and, and Rita say, actually, it's time to come together and fill in for me, where did decidedly come in? Was that prior? Was that post? Take me on that journey that led to yonder. First, you have to take Rita out because that part of Rita's exit probably had something to do with Populous and Brandcap coming closer together and Populous Data Solutions coming closer together. Over time, we worked on projects together from the beginning, but we struggled with certain aspects of that. And the, the the insights didn't always go straight into strategy the way we wanted it. Strategists were going, are the researchers asking the right questions? The researchers were going to treat us like a supplier. And we felt that that really wasn't what we had hoped for. We thought we had two businesses that worked together, you know, holding hands happily, you know, joined up. But actually, 
by not integrating the businesses, it's very hard to achieve that. Because still, you've got your own P&Ls, you know, you drive the success of your line of business. And somewhere on the journey, we thought, really, if we could take that pain point out, obviously create lots of new pain points by bringing people together that slightly different cultures, slightly different skill sets, slightly different capabilities, slightly different ways of working. But we felt from a client perspective, they had pointed this out that they struggled with this with other companies where it was handed from one company to the next. So we thought it's worth going through the effort of integrating the businesses. And also we thought people get more interesting career paths through learning about the other side of the business. And for me, good consultants are curious people. So helping them be exploring different sides of themselves would help. To your point there, Manfred, around the the challenges of an integration, because you you gave the example there of the teams treating each other like suppliers. I'd, I'd love to just dig into that with both of you and and maybe start well, with why actually, don't you? <laughs> that's what I'm about to do, <laughs> actually find out what were some of those challenges. And I guess both, what were the ones you expected? I'd also be interested, what were the unexpected challenges in that integration? And, and you know, if you had to do it again, what might you do differently? We wouldn't have COVID. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Copious wouldn't have happened. That would, that's that's uh, how we would do things differently. I mean, I think... But I have to talk about the timing of the integration in that context. Exactly. I mean, I think we... I mean, building on, on what Manfred said, I mean, I think one of the reasons for populist thinking it was a good idea to come together, you know, Manfred's right. We did have... Some people in populist had that frustration that they felt that when they worked with Brandcap, it was a sort it was a supplier client relationship it wasn't a sort of collaborative it wasn't as collaborative as we'd hoped it would be but within populace even we'd become a little bit siloed you had the qual team who occasionally felt that they were the sort of they were the supplier to the quant team and it wasn't as collaborative as it should have been and the way the research market was moving and this was the big spur from populace's point of view in thinking it was the right thing to come together with Brandcap to form Yonder, um, was the the research market is just becoming much more commoditized. And we, we decided there were two futures for the business. One was just providing fantastic quality research with a little bit of insight added on and then passing it on. Or, or else you, you use the brains in the business to... You know, use the research as the starting point, but then use that to help businesses understand and to answer their seri- answer their biggest challenges. So in order to do that, we needed to become more expert in the sectors and the businesses in which we operated. And we needed a more, a more consultative approach, both in the way we sell, but in the way that we deal directly with clients. And so you know, our understanding of the way the research market led inevitably to us thinking, we needed to become more of a consultancy and it just felt natural to Manford and I that we should just come together, come together to, to do that. You asked when decidedly fitted in about then. So we had come to the conclusion that we were going to come together. Decidedly sort of, it, it was an opportunity that sort of came to us. We didn't actually go and look for it, but the opportunity to bring a research focused innovation business just fitted very nicely into the our emerging thoughts about the proposition and Manfred will talk more about Yonder's, prop, Yonder's proposition. So just before we sort of started the process of merger, we were acquired decidedly. And so this was probably the autumn of 2019. Mm-hmm. 
And so we were starting the process. We put together how we were going to structure the business, which was very much about smashing up existing teams. Silos, yes, not smashing up the team, smashing up the smashing up the silos, making you know making sure that people really did work together. That we brought we brought insight and strategy and creative to every problem together, not sort of in in individual silos. So it was very much about you know making people who didn't necessarily work together currently you know working working together. And then, you know, we heard this thing from China and gradually it got closer and closer. You know, our plan was we were going to launch at the end of March 2020. You know, we had Sounds like a familiar date. Uh, and then, you know, a few day, a few weeks beforehand, they started looking, oh, are we sure about doing this? Uh, and then it just... Are we sure about having the, the company get together? <laughs> the biggest concern at that point was, will they still allow us to bring 160 people into one place? That really, you know, that is how naive we were about COVID at that point. It, it was literally, oh, we probably won't be able to get everyone in one room. So can we still launch? Because, of course, for us, the internal launch was almost more important than the external launch of exciting people about this new proposition. Well, and we didn't launch in March, as you can imagine, because we were in lockdown by that date. I remember we sat in this room having that conversation. Should we go ahead? Should we not go ahead? We decided we wouldn't go ahead. So when should we launch? Oh, well, maybe we should maybe leave it to the summer. And I remember I was arguing, no, let's leave it to September because it's going to be, all be over by then. It just gives us time. September it is. We didn't want to launch when we weren't all together. I was very disappointed Michael was pushing it so far out. Exactly. Literally. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll leave it till September. And then you know, as soon as COVID hit and Boris Johnson announced the lockdown, it had an immediate impact on different parts of the business in different different ways. I mean, and from that first day, uh, Manfred and me and Chris Atkins, who ran Popular Data Solutions, and Tom Wormold, who, who ran Decidedly, and Gary Munkister, who was the MD of Populous, uh, we met every day virtually, and we started to run the business as a single business. So we were already, we were a group, but we ran the business as a single business, which we had never done, never done before. Not under the yonder name, so it was literally just the business was still operating, but we took the decisions as a team. It was obviously a very, very difficult time, but we worked together incredibly well. And it was wonderful how Gary, who you know, had been running on day-to-day -day basis, Populous, was prepared instantly to sort of take into account, well, actually, we need to make a decision that's going to help brand cap, not just Populous. And we we started behaving as a collective leadership straight away, which was, which was really good and was really helpful for the launch of Yonder when it eventually came. Which was in October. We, so we still pretty much did stick to the timeline that Michael thought up, but we were obviously deep in in COVID uh, lockdown. But what changed during that period of time, COVID obviously changed people's behaviors. You know, online banking, uh, some of the over 80s who had never considered something like that suddenly did online banking. So yeah, going to the yonder proposition a little bit, you know, using customer insights to drive big strategic decisions in line with business understanding in an imaginative way is what Yonda does. So as these changes happen, it was, okay, maybe it isn't ideal to launch now because from a bringing people together, this is going to be difficult, but our clients definitely need what we've got to offer. So we can't actually wait. This is the time to 
go live. And it really did. I mean, we were okay up till to that point. I mean, we, we were kind of breaking even. We went from being very successful and growing very fast to suddenly just breaking even. We, we set ourselves, at the beginning of the pandemic, we set ourselves the aim of being break, breaking even in that year, which we thought was, which we en ended up achieving more, more than achieving. Because the second half of the year after Yonder was actually really quite successful. So it very quickly took off as we, we were hoping. But you can imagine, if you, what would you do differently? God, uh, where do you start? I mean, you integrating a business virtually. How was that? How did you, because that's the, to your point, it sounds like at a leadership team level, you came together and five people on a Zoom call, we've all done it, it's doable. To that point, you're navigating not only bringing the businesses together, which is naturally a time of uncertainty, and you've got COVID, which is an even bigger time of uncertainty. I, side note, Michael, I was like you, I thought by the school year, it would all, you know, like most headlines, it disappear and I was proved wrong. But how, how did you, you know, Manfred, you were going on to it. How did you manage that to reassure people, I guess also integrate them? Because not only were you bringing together these businesses, but that was at a time where suddenly as a threat to your business, remote working was huge. So what might have previously been, you know, you were only contending with other London employers. Suddenly you've got people all over the country. How did you actually approach that to, to make the team feel part of Yonder and not five different or just feeling like they're lonely on, on their own at home. We implemented, <laughs> we implemented a structure that, and you know, structure as in, it wasn't a physical structure, but it was how we expected people to work together. And we called that clouds at that point that basically meant people were grouped around clients and it didn't matter what background they had and they were put into a cloud and Obviously, without shaking up the client relationships, which we kept as much as we could, but started putting people together that never worked together. And then they had, you know, their weekly catch up suddenly with a team they got to know during that period, mentoring across different specialisms. So you might have been a researcher and you really wanted to learn about consulting. So you got a mentor that sat in the consulting team and we started building relationships across the organization in a virtual way. You know, I'm, I'm not pretending it was the greatest way of doing it, by the way. It was the only thing we could think of at the moment in time. And we also had, I think, a weekly meeting for the whole company, which was a big, a big Zoom call. But we still have that. that. We, and we still have that. I mean, the thing, we, we hopefully, and it's gradually becoming less and less Zoom-based and more and more face-to-face. -face. I mean, the thing that was incredibly successful, uh, we had a sort of business continuity policy, which sort of said, you know, what happens if the office was unavailable to us? And it worked. I mean, who thought it was, it, it was amazing uh, that we managed to move from being an entirely office-based organization to an online-based organization. And it was incredibly seamless. And, uh, you know, our very small IT team, there's a lot of credit for that. I'm interested as well, because I think, um, I know Brankab had a couple of offices globally before that. And I, I know we talked about the challenges of COVID, but actually, how was that in terms of speed of integration? Did that help suddenly everyone's virtual or were there That's still... That's actually a good point. The people in the offices, so like New York and Hong Kong, felt suddenly closer to the business than they had ever felt because they could be in the company calls. We chose obviously timings that worked for the different time zone. And that their feedback was, yeah, 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 we are now part of Yonder. This feels real that wasn't the same for naturally everyone that was off it based in london because they probably didn't feel they had their water cooler moment or the kitchen used to be a place where people came together anyway 
And friendships were costed different organizations already, not necessarily in the structure that we had planned, but that's okay. You know, that, that works quite well. So yes, it did have a strangely positive impact on the not London-based teams. And you mentioned you've kept the weekly sort of all company, I guess, intrigued. What else have you kept from the virtual world or the COVID world? And actually, what is it you've, you've tried to get rid of pretty quickly? Now you can have people back in the office. <laughs> what do you think about that one? <laughs> I think it's an ongoing process. <laughs> Both Manfred and I just sort of fairly sort of candid and straightforward people. So we'll just be candid and straightforward. So um, I think there's lots of things that we probably still don't feel we've got, we've got quite, we've got quite right. Post COVID or during COVID, you had all these people deciding, sitting at home, thinking actually is, is consulting, is research, is creative design for me? Do I want to go do something else in my career? So we've had an interesting experience, Populous and Brandcap and Populous Data Solutions had had incredibly stable workforces. Uh, yeah, we hadn't had churn. We really hadn't had churn. Uh, and then, so during COVID, you got people deciding to go back to the, you know, go back to Australia or New Zealand or wherever it was they had originally come from. Uh, you got people deciding they might go back to university. You got people deciding actually they wanted to become a teacher rather than doing that. So a lot of people making different career choices. And then they sort of, as we came out of COVID and the great resignation, lots of the labor market suddenly became much more fluid. And one of the, Big regrets I have about the structure we put in place at the beginning was, you know, we, we felt, and I still think this is true, we felt that, you know, the people that Populist employed, the people that Brandcap employed were actually very similar types of people. Brandcap guys tended, tended to be more snappy dresses and, and maybe, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a, it was a different and cooler vibe, one might say, but they'd be pleased to hear, but, but essentially, you know, the backgrounds, the kind of people they were, very, very similar. So we always thought they would get on quite well as a team, and and that, and that has proved true. But what we didn't properly take into sight, the intercount, was Populous was a much bigger company than than Brandcap. And so when you spread people across these clouds that we created, forcing people to work in a collaborative way across different disciplines, there were many fewer Brandcap people to spread across those clouds, and weirdly. Something I never considered. A lot of the brand cap people felt suddenly a bit swamped by researchers. The slightly less well dressed and trendy researchers, which you couldn't see on Zoom anyway. You couldn't see on Zoom. Um, although everyone's wearing pajamas, <laughs> exactly. snappier pajamas. Yeah, than that's cap. right. And they felt a bit sort of bits a bit swamped. And, it, and for some of those people, it felt this was a research company takeover of a consultancy. Whereas actually we'd been bending over backwards because our, our big fear was that people in populace would feel this was a consultancy taking over a research business. Which some probably have felt. With some, yeah, which probably some. So you did have yeah. this, you know, as you'd expect, you had both of those fears. So if we were doing it again, I would have paid much more attention to making sure that people with particular skills and disciplines um, felt more able to sort of have a, have a sort of home, have a clear home and, and know that they were all together. So we, we have tried subsequent to the clouds to, to do that. 
the trouble is once you start giving people homes, I think consulting is your home, research is your home, you end up with silos. So we've now probably got a little bit too far back into the silo route. And so we're now working on that. I don't know if I should be so candid on this. But, I, think, um, I think you can be. No, and, and thank you, because I know it will, will help others. And you've answered my second question on that, which was going to be how you manage those tensions of some of your research team feeling overrun by consultants and vice versa. And, and it sounds like balancing those clouds with more traditional practices, as it were, was the solution. Something I want to come on to around actually the leadership team and you know yourselves as co-CEOs, I'd be really interested, go into as much detail as you can on that journey, but much more around the decision of co-CEO. Because I think something it's something that I haven't seen very often. And you know, I'm no management guru, but you read enough business books that kind of say everything should have one person in charge. The old, you know, if it's not one person, things drop between the cracks. And I'd love to, you've obviously said, no, this works for us and it's working for you. I'd, I'd love to understand how that decision came about. And then we can go into actually how you make that work for yourselves in the business. I can also tell you when you asked people in the business, the management teams or the senior people in the business, what's your biggest fear about the merger having co-CEOs? That was generally the answer that people gave. We didn't feel, yeah, literally, I don't think there was a different answer. I mean, that literally was the answer. We didn't feel like that, as you can tell, because we still went ahead with it. We got very different passions and let Michael talk about his passion. I'll tell you about mine. And we actually felt that, look, I work with CEOs all the time. It's a lonely place. There is far too much on your plate. You drop things right, left and center, and you decide what you drop. We very much thought if we work closely together, we won't drop as many things because we got different interests. And if we push really focus on those, we trust each other's decision-making will be good. And so I'm very much focused on external facing yonder, the way we work with our clients, the proposition, the quality of our work, and everything we need in order to keep on moving forward on that front. And Michael is much more on the internal side. Changing, changing the photocopy of consciousness. <laughs> never, he never has. <laughs> so, so, so you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for us, it was never an issue. It was always obvious to us how these roles would split because I am much more interested in how businesses run and I'm much better at that not great at it, but better at that than I am at being an advisor to clients. So for me, it was a, it was a simple, it was a simple split. I'm interested in people. Uh, I'm interested in how you give people good careers. Andrew, I found it populist. We had, we didn't have some great vision or some great plan. We weren't, we weren't trying to sort of, you know, create some John Lewis utopia. Um, you know, we were in, in there, there, there isn't a yonder Christmas ad coming. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> we've done Christmas ad actually. Yes, you, uh, we can talk client. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we didn't have this. But as I became more serious about running a business, it, the thing that really interested me is you know, we, we employed all these people who started off as bright young interns and then they started to you know, do well in the group. They, develop their way through the organization and you know so there are a number of people here today who started as interns and now now are directors in the business and it just became really interesting to me it's how you help people build good careers and the answer to how you help people build good careers is you have to keep growing a business so you can give them the opportunities to develop those careers otherwise they disappear so that's what interested me how do you keep growing a business how do you keep focused on ensuring that people can develop good careers so you mentioned that it was the biggest fear for your team. So actually, how did you tackle that? 
We just told them it was going to work. We <laughs> <laughs> were so convinced that uh, this is a personality thing. I thought most CEOs I know will probably not be good sharing a job because they are a certain personality type. You might have realized that neither Michael nor I are that personality type. So therefore, you've got to be open to suggestions from others in a way that most CEOs are not, because that is not how they normally make decisions. It, you get the information and you decide. We are very happy to debate it. We constantly on WhatsApp going, uh, what do you think of this? I, um, it, and it's an easy way. It's constant communication. And it feels like an easier job. We, yeah, we've worked together for a long time in Brandcap and then pop, in Populist now and Yonder. So we've got to know each other well. And we've, we share very similar sort of outlook on life. We've got very similar values. Yeah, we've been through difficult times in business together. Um, and so we trust each other. I trust Manfred to make decisions. He trusts me to make decisions. Yeah, we do, as Manfred said, yeah, we, we send sort of text messages and WhatsApp and we get, you know, you need a single app that allows you to communicate because all these different ways you forget which conversation you're having on which form of communication. But um, yeah, it, it just feels natural to us. And it sounds like it works very well for you. And I think, and this just may be my intrigue, but I, as much for anyone else considering it, because I do think it isn't wildly different from people who call themselves partner and run a, a consulting business. I guess couple of maybe these are edge cases or fringe cases, but where you do disagree, how do you decide for the business? How, how is that decided? Because there's obviously a risk that if you need a majority for every vote and you disagree, you'll be there debating it for however long. How do you divide it? Is it by sort of focus area? What, what do you do? I mean, we don't tend to disagree a lot. I mean, obviously there are areas, but it is amazing how often we sit in the meeting and I say something which Manfred was just about to say or, or vice versa. Um, yeah, we do have very similar instincts on these things. Or we often say, I don't think Michael will have the same opinion. And then I realize he does, or the other way around. I, you know, we think the other one might have a different opinion, but in the end, we don't. But ultimately, yeah, Manfred, as he said, Manfred's ultimate responsibility is around the the quality of the work we deliver to clients and what our, and what our proposition, what our proposition is. And yeah, if, if we disagree, I am likely to defer to him in those, in those areas on the issues that I'm responsible for. If we strongly disagree, he's likely to defer to me, but sometimes you know, we, we argue it through and come to a decision. And it's not always the one that I would come to, but it's, but it's the one that we come to together. Same here. It's not always the one I would get, come to, but. That's as I say with the personality type, you got to be able or happy that it might not be your decision, but if it was Michael's decision and I disagree, as soon as it's we've decided, I will agree. You can't then disagree after. That will cause problems. Yeah. And there seems like a huge hugely high degree of trust between yourselves. And obviously you, you've got to have that running a business. But how did you cultivate that to the point where you could run a business of this scale like that? Because you said you've got to know each other, but yeah, how did that evolve? It always surprised me that the shared values that Mike was talking about, that's really strong. The way we think of fairness is exactly the same. The way we think, of, we're both passionate about people. Michael is much nicer than me. But in, in the end, you know, I get excited if, I see someone in front of a client and they perform incredibly well and they advise clients well. That's when I feel proud. Like I'm great. Yeah. Look what they're doing. And Michael comes from the same 
think, but look at something slightly more different as in some people progressing through a career. In the end, we're in the same space. It's just you have the access is different, but the value set is what probably aligns us the most. Yeah. I'm not sure this is a great advert for saying to people, you, know, you must go down the CEO, co-CEO route. Um, because, you know, you see in lots of businesses, it's a, it, the reason why you end up with some co-CEOs is because people aren't prepared to make the difficult decision of who should be the leader. For us, we didn't feel we needed to make that decision because we knew we were going to work well together. But, you know, and as I said, that trust is built. But you know, we're not hugely, we don't hang out a lot together out of work. I mean, you know, we're good friends, but not in the sense that we, you know, we're around each other's houses all the time, playing with his dogs. <laughs> How many dogs have you got? Three. Wow. I know. What, that's very, very tangible. What, what, are, what, are, what are we talking? Small dogs, big dogs? Uh, it depends how big you call a Labrador, but yeah, they're, they're pretty sizable dogs. Oh, we've got a retriever, so I know the size. <laughs> lovely, yeah, yeah. lovely dogs labs though as well. Um, sorry, complete tangent. <laughs> just uh, as a dog lover. I'm, well, they, they, they used to come to the office all the time. So I did not, see a dog bowl out the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I know. I think it's just they're symbolic. It's, I guess. Why'd you stop bringing them along? It's just that not enough people in the office. I mean, you know, we never carried on with this, but part of bringing the dogs to the office, but people really enjoy having them in the office. I, like, they really, they, they were a good connector for the companies as well. Like that, one of my dogs actually used to hang out in the middle between the different companies because he loves attention. He's, he's going to eat people's shoes and take things out of the bin. Sandwiches, obviously, things like that. But it, it did help with bringing the companies together, actually, without that being a forced. Now we don't have enough people in, so I wouldn't feel comfortable with them just running around an empty office. That's the only reason they're annoying at the moment. <laughs> well, it wasn't where I was expecting to go, but there's an interesting question, which and it, it jumps back a bit to our culture conversation, is actually the office. Because I've you know, given it a tour before we started this lovely space, and I'm assuming this is post-COVID. Is this? It, we've had this office before. Oh, Okay. Did you redesign it post-COVID? We did. And if so, what did you change and why? I'll leave that answer to you. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, again, it's still a work in progress. One of the advantages of COVID, I guess, was that um, if we had merged the companies without having, without being sort of away um, during lockdown, we would have had to sort of really force the former Brandcat people not to sit where Brandcat people sat. and populous, We had to make those big sort of, those big changes. The fact that actually we were out of the office pretty much for 18 months or whatever it was enabled us to sort of rethink a bit about the space and make sure that, um, yeah, we, so we've now become a much more, uh, you have to book a desk rather than, um, rather than have your own desk. We try to create the office where there are different parts of the office where you can do different things. There are some parts where you can do sort of quiet work with multiple screens. There are other areas where you can sit together and collaborate. It's the office, we're sort of trying in the process of trying to reinvent the office rather than just being everybody sitting at desks. It's about different areas where you can do different things. Fascinating. And as I say, I, I didn't expect to go there, but I was curious because it looked so new. And I do think there's an interesting question as we do come back to the you know, the working world. I think that office, how you use that office space feels very different. So actually that point around different zones for different types of work, I think is really interesting. Hope that you get enough people back in to bring your dogs back. Yeah. It's a, it's a, that mix, the hybrid way of working. And like, you know, I, I'd love to know what people think that listen to these podcasts because I'm sure they have 
similar challenges that we are facing around it. There was like a 1.0 version as in you got to work from home. There is no other choice. And people really got into it and it was fine. They felt lonely. They didn't particularly like it because it was change. Three months in, it became normal. And that's what you did. 2.0 ways of working. Sometimes you could come in the office. People were fine. I think we had the 3.0 version that no one knows what that looks like around actually you lose some connectivity with the organization that, you know, I used to have people sitting opposite me. They would ask me questions. I could just feedback. You progressed work really quickly. Can't do that now. That doesn't work as, you know, every meeting is scheduled and there isn't enough hours in the day to schedule every meeting that you should have. You know, that's what Michael said. This is a working process. I think we, we're constantly rethinking how we can use it. We definitely want people to come back more often. I think they've forgotten how much fun it is to be together. But you can't force people to come back either, which doesn't fit our culture. So we're having some challenges around this. It is an interesting question. And I, I guess also to, to that point, Manfred, around being across from the desk, I guess, Michael, there's an interesting question around career progression and learning. Because I do, I started work be, um, sort of BC before COVID. And you know, that was a big learning, sitting next to people like yourselves and just watching osmosis. Actually, how you create that in the new world. You might not have an answer, but I'm intrigued what you what your thoughts are on that both. It's dividing talent at the moment because some talent, people who are starting on that journey are great doing this virtually and actually are really good at you know, confident enough to reach out to someone and have the conversation and go, actually, I don't know what to do with it. Can I have 10 minutes? Can I just chat this through? And obviously we try and connect people with more senior people on an ongoing basis to mentor them through this process. But you can try as much mentoring virtually. For some people, this environment has meant that they're not progressing as fast as you did expect because they're not that personality type. They like physical interaction. They like being together with other people. They have found this much more difficult. It depends on the type of person. And this is where I think fair, you know, our sense of fairness would mean, how do I also let these people progress in the same way? So we need to find a different solution. We haven't got the answer yet, but it's not created equality of for talent to progress and it's yeah and it's a struggle because we've also got a lot of people who started at yonder so no experience of the legacy companies and the way in which we work the, the, the way in which we work the way that we want to interact with clients those experiences you can only really get by sitting next to someone and being next to me and going and physically seeing clients and so yeah it's very much as Manfred said it's very much work in progress well, I, I think a fascinating conversation and yeah, really interesting to get your views, how you're managing this. I think to close off actually, you know, our, our conversation around where the business came from, I think it's only right to look forwards, you know, scarily, we're almost at the end of the year, which blows my mind. And I'd love to know, you know, through everything we've talked about, it's still a journey, a work in progress. What are the plans for, for I'll say the rest of this year, but go into next, you know, the next 12, 18, 24 months? God, how do you summarize it in like, what, two minutes? We've um, got plenty of time, Manfred. <laughs> well, I'll give you a world exclusive. <laughs> Please. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we're just about to bring three people who work in Singapore into the business. So we're going to have a Singapore Singapore office from early in October. So um, it's been a long conversation. It started well before COVID, but um, we've got these three guys who are really keen to um, spread the Yonder offer uh, further into Asia. Fantastic. Congratulations. And, and part of, we are slightly concerned about where the UK economy is heading, to be fair. And uh, this was already part of the plan, but we're now pushing harder is to 
focus on growth in the US. We got a good team on the ground. We hadn't invested that much behind it, which we've now decided to do to push that side because kind of balance where the work comes from. We only got one PL. So our different office is probably not what others have, but we put the right team on the project. Doesn't matter where it sits. So we want to carry on doing that and, and just look for the opportunities in the countries where they, where they are happening. But that's partly to do with pushing in the US. So one area that I, I think is a really hot topic in, in consulting, and rightly so, is, is diversity and inclusion. And I think, you know, we talked about some of the things to come out of COVID. And actually, I think in some ways, people have become more accepting that we have different backgrounds, different lives. You know, now you've seen everyone's kitchen and living room and you, you feel more connected. And I'd love to understand for yourselves as a firm, you know, we talked about the business side, but actually, how have you approached this from a diversity and inclusion perspective? What are you doing to make Yonder a, a more, more inclusive place to work? On the day that we launched, we, we sort of published a statement about our attitude towards diversity and inclusion because it felt very important to us. We're both gay men. And uh, I think we both had very different experiences, actually, of, of being, being gay men. But and it, for me, it was, a long, it, was, it was quite a long journey before I was, felt comfortable in the office talking about that fact for a long time. I, I just didn't. It was an unspoken thing. And... Yeah, as I said earlier, I'm really interested in how people develop careers and how how you sort of uh, operate in an, in, in an office environment. And it became sort of clear to me that actually once I started in my own life, once I started to be more open about my life, I think I was a better, I think I, I was better in the office. I think I was less buttoned up. Uh, I was more able to be myself. And so it therefore sort of became obvious to me that what you need to do in an office environment is make sure that people feel as comfortable as they can be being themselves and not have a sort of how I am at the weekends person and how I am in the office person. You, you know, obviously you perhaps behave in slightly different ways in front of a client than you might do when you're sitting at your desk in the office, but we want people to feel able to be to be themselves. And that means you've got to understand people. You've really got to understand the people you're, the people you're working with. So for us, you know, our starting point as gay men is it's something we knew about. And one of the things I was most proud of, and Brandcap helped a lot with this, was you know, suddenly it became obvious over the last few years before COVID, there were other gay people working in the business. And I didn't know that, but suddenly I think because I was more open about it, encouraged by some colleagues to become more open about it, uh, it helps other people in the business become more open. It's also very clear to us that you looked at our, you look at the consulting team and the research teams, very, very, very white, looked at our support services, look at the finance team, look at the IT team, look at the office management at the time, much more diverse. And I think that the key for businesses to start the process of becoming more open and more alert to the fact that we need to do more to find different people, different types of people, different from di different diversities, is really understanding what the barriers are to people that we're already working with. So we spent some time when we first launched Yonder asking some of you know, some, um, a black colleague who was very well respected, just come and talk to us a bit about 
what it is, what the challenges are, both in the workplace but outside the workplace, just try to understand. So we had a series of our, our stories initiatives which enabled people to understand where their colleagues were coming from. It could be, you know, this is particularly true during, during COVID, you know, parents with young kids. What really are the pressures? We talked during COVID and we had these weekly meetings we mentioned before. I talked a lot about the importance of empathy and making sure that you know, some people were finding it a real struggle to sit in front of their computer all day long. And we need to understand that. And people ought to feel free to just go for a walk and turn off their computer for a while. And people, we also recognize that some people were struggling with homeschooling. And so just trying to understand our own backgrounds and the challenges we face, we felt was the starting point. But then, of course, you've got to do much more. You've got to try and make sure that when you're recruiting, you're looking in different pools. Brandcap was always really good at this. One of the things that um, I really loved about Brandcap was they had an incredibly diverse. They had people from all kinds of different parts, different parts of the world. And a business like a, cons a consulting business just needs to have those perspectives. So, um, I'm really old, so yeah. But if you're sitting, so you need to have lots of young people. But yeah, if you, yeah, if you're all, if you're all sort of sitting around the room, and you all share the same, you know, the same when, when, uh, television programs you all watched as a kid, and you've got the same comedy references, you're going to come up with the same kinds of thinking. But if you've got people who grew up in different communities. Uh, different countries maybe, or in different ethnic minority communities who have got different touch points and won't necessarily get the sort of, don't mention the war reference and faulty towers, you're going to have much better thinking. And you've got to reach out and find ways to bring people into the business. And to you know, so we've done quite a lot of work with local college trying to help young kids understand that there could be a role, it could be a a job for them in consulting and explaining what that is. You've got to be prepared to take some risks and employ some people who don't necessarily have a traditional tr traditional background. It's just uh, having your eyes open. Anyway, that's 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 my thing on diversity. Yeah, I mean, I got, you know, Michael Michael hinted it. We had very different ways of experiences through our careers. I remember if moving from one job to another, someone said to me, "Oh, I." The person knew me privately. Are you going to be out at work? I'm like, uh, is there another option? Because I am who I am. As you're just going to get this version of me. There is no other version. And it's never been a problem in my career. It's been like, so I've had a very lucky path where there has been no one. I'm not saying I've always progressed in the same way as someone else, but where there was a disadvantage, I also had someone that I felt I was being advantaged by. So it, depending on the people you worked with, it, it never, I never saw it as a hindrance to get to where I wanted to go, but I found consulting to be dominated by white, very well-educated, you know, especially in the UK, Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh universities and that was it we wanted to have different backgrounds because the the interaction like michael said more interesting the debates are more interesting and you get perspectives you couldn't get on the challenge that actually help you solve a challenge in a different way and it's more fun like i've you know i like different views it makes you a better person but from that perspective we've always always pushed for it 
we did realize that the more you work with recruiters, the more homogenous you become because they kind of try to summarize you as in, okay, well, we know they want the first from Oxford. So that's why we sent them. And suddenly you surrounded by the same people, which you never wanted in the first place. So you almost have to re-educate your recruiters to be very precise about what you want as a culture and how diverse you want to be as a workforce. And then they actually send you the right people, but you have to be quite explicit about it, we found. That's really interesting. And and I think it's a good example of things you have proactively done. And you, you, Michael, you made the point that you're both gay men and actually being more open about that helped other colleagues to you know, feel comfortable being open about it. Manfred, you you are right. There's a, a lot of consulting firms run by middle-aged, straight white men. And I guess you you gave the example of your black colleague. And maybe that's a good example to to help others who are, who are listening to this extrapolate out because I'm guessing here, so stop me, is I think if you are from a, a certain diverse group, being more of yourself will make others feel comfortable. But if some of our listeners are undiverse in inverted commas, actually, what can they be doing to increase their understanding, but then also role model and bring in things that do make both those colleagues from underrepresented backgrounds, let's say, feel more open, but also take steps to make their firm more diverse? The good way of doing it is being open-minded and curious and trying to understand. You'll never fully understand someone else's background, but trying to understand and engage and learn and be curiosity is the most important bit here. Because we even, we learned by people talking about their own story, that everyone's story was different. It didn't matter. You know, you couldn't actually categorize people by ethnic backgrounds. Even if they had grown up in a similar type of area, they still had a personal story that was different. Listening to those stories helped people understand and behave differently. You've touched on it there. So I'm going to ask that bring to life this story because it sounds really interesting. And, and Manfred, I do agree with you. I think in our world where, and I've just been guilty of it, where we oversimplify people to a box, you know, even to your point, the kind of you know, Oxford educated, et cetera, everyone has a different story and different challenges and, and background. But t- tell me about this story initiative you did and actually sort of what it was and then how you used it. Because I, I think that sounds like a fascinating, you know, almost case study for others in terms of how to open that dialogue came in different forms. I mean, the, we did a, this was during COVID. So we did a, a sort of a, a sit down interview. It was actually, it was me having a conversation with our office manager and talking about her as a, as a black woman and her experiences inside the office. Opening those conversations, I think is really valuable and it enables you to think more widely around then how do we recruit? And it makes you more comfortable as a business in trying to go out and recruit different minorities. And we did a, a similar kind of concept, but we called like an imagination series. And we brought people in who had uh, successful careers, written books or interesting backgrounds. None of them were white middle-aged men, let's put it that way. And just make sure that the stories they had to tell showed people that it didn't matter what background you was, you could be very successful in what we did. But it was really great hearing those stories because... The experience of the people we brought in and the way they told the story is really exciting and, and motivating. Well, I, th- I think I, mean, I think we need to do more as a business. I'm sure other businesses do too. I mean, I think that's a good starting point. But then we've got to be, you know, make sure that we don't lose focus and ensure ensure that when we are recruiting, 
that we, you know, the, the lessons we have learned from these conversations, we need to make sure we are bringing those into the interviewing processes and we're making sure that we are seeing a good range of different, different candidates and we don't allow ourselves, because it's quite easy, allow ourselves to sort of slip back into, you know, if, if you're employing someone with a, with a first from Oxford, you know, you're employing quite a bright person, probably not necessarily any good at what they do, but, um, <laughs> so you've got to make sure you don't just fall into those boxes because it's easy. And so it's, it's constantly, yeah, and we haven't got this right yet, but constantly we have to ask those questions of ourselves. I think some really good examples and, and points there, like you say, of actually a lot of it's about almost demystifying and because of the sensitivities and also a lot of things in the media, it can feel quite unnerving. And so actually reducing that, I imagine, makes everyone more comfortable. And then that awareness and, and like you said, Manfred, actually showing role models. And I, I think you, that point actually is a great one to the question I asked about, or what if your firm is just straight white men who went to Oxford? Well, actually, can you bring in role model? Firstly, hire, you can hire more diversity, but can you bring in people to show the different backgrounds, the different stories? And as you grow, actually reinforce that, I think it's really important. No, I think some great points, both. And yeah, it sounds like a journey you're on, like many of the other things we've talked about today. <laughs> Yonder is definitely a journey. Brilliant. Well, and I think nicely takes us on to the, yon well, my understanding the yonder clock face but direct me here because i understand you you have this clock face and i'll let you explain what it is but you've also done a lot of work around what that means in terms of sentiments of the uk economy and where we're going and i'll let you start where's best because i'd love to get your thoughts on that but if actually it makes sense to introduce the clock face first and i'm assuming they're linked so tell me if not but i'll let you choose do we start with your view on the economy or do we start with the clock face well, let's let's start with you on the clock face and uh, the idea is if you look across the population of a country, in today's world, it's much easier to group the population by what we have. We have got two axes on this, and one axis security, and a lot of, I'll tell you what factors fall underneath that, and diversity is the other part. It has a lot to do with values and what people believe in more than just demographic profiles. Because what we learned out of polling was that if you just went by the traditional ways of dividing the country, polling didn't work anymore. It actually gave you the wrong answer. If you started overlaying values, you got a much more accurate read of how people were going to vote. And that gives you the next clue. It's basically a way of predicting customer behavior by how they sit in which part of the clock they are placed. And I'll give you an example. If you ask consumers around sustainability, is it important? Every consumer will tell you in a quant survey, absolutely important, of course. If you go into different parts of the clock, let's say four or five o'clock, generally the, the people are slightly less educated. They're values are more around really security and knowing what's coming next. They'll tell you that financially they're also not as stable as some of the others. They might tell you that, yes, it's very important, but I can't afford to pay for it. So I will buy a product that doesn't have it on it. Whilst people that are at 11 o'clock will live it and breathe sustainability and make deliberate choices around products that are in line with that. Everyone says the same thing in a, in a first question, but I can predict if they're going to 
buy my product or I'm more likely to buy it if I know their attitude to this specific. And I'm just using sustainability as one example. And you can literally have a few how people are going to react to something that you are going to put into the market. So it's a prediction, a way of predicting consumer behavior, which makes us very excited because we like looking ahead and Yonder kind of has that in its name. So it's a key ingredient to how we do work. Sounds really interesting. And just to help, and I may be oversimplifying this matter, but to your point, the, the segments on the clock, do those correspond with socioeconomic factors that you mentioned there's axes of security and diversity, but then does it go from one being the lowest income in the country through to 12 or is, is it not quite? And if this is not a particularly relevant juncture, stop me. No, so socioeconomics play a part in it, but they are only one element of how you look at these groupings. Think much more, there's a lot of other data overlaid that has to do with beliefs and values and attitudes towards things that give you a different picture. Even so, they might be earning the same amount of money. Their reaction to what, how to make a choice or, or choice making happens in a different way because beliefs are different. I hope I explained that. Well. No, no, that makes that makes sense, and it's worth saying. This is why I I didn't go into research. I'm not <laughs> my quantitative skills are not good enough to to go to that level. I just about uh, count down from darts. If you ever played darts, you know darts. Yeah, I can just about do the the um, uh, subtraction to get me the scores, but that's about as far as I go. Can you do the throwing to match? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if you miss the board, it makes the subtraction very easy. <laughs> so I combine those two. And to bring, you know, we touched on that kind of state of the nation. And I understand something you've done a lot of to partly inform, but partly use the clock face for your clients is that sort of sense of the nation, mood of the nation. And I try and avoid timely things because I like these podcasts to be evergreen, but I also think we're in a hugely interesting time economically. And I just love to get from that research, actually, what are you seeing? What does the sort of next 12 months, 24 months for the UK look like? And what should your clients and other consulting firms be thinking about as a result? First, I don't think we, we would talk about the mood of the nation because we are talking about a mood of different groupings of people across the nation. And because we look at it in a few of our clients, I can't give you a picture across the whole because it would be different if you were a supermarket and I could give you a few of how that might look and I can give you a few of how that might look for Waitrose versus an Aldi. Um, and what challenges they might be facing that are slightly different, but it doesn't ladder up to a few of the UK economy dropping out of it. If that yeah, makes sense. No, that makes sense. We are about to go into creating another data point around cost of living crisis and what that triggers within those different groups. But we haven't done that yet, so I can't tell you the, what the outcome of it is. Because what's fascinating us at the moment is if you are Louis Vuitton LVMH today, You've had just had the best six months in your history, 36% growth, 23% margin wow. increase. You're having a great time. Cost of living crisis, what's that? If you're Iceland, you would be telling a very different story. And what we're trying to get to is how are these, and we know who is buying what, how are the next six months going to play out for them? And then we can draw back conclusions for what that might mean for different categories and different sectors and different clients. We're literally going into this in the next couple of weeks because we wanted to wait until some of the recent changes had dropped into the landscape. Let's put it that way. 
Sure. Well, I feel I might have to come back in a few weeks and we, we do a round two. I, if this isn't possible to, to your point, because it's clients specific or sensitive, just stop me. But you gave the supermarket analogy and I just be, I know I'm, I'm asking for probably what you said you can't do, but from the research you have done in certain sectors, is there any either surprising insights you found? So contrary to maybe the narrative that everyone is no longer spending, or are there anything that you, you are seeing in enough sectors that may be something you could say that, you know, there is a trend that other sectors might see. So you mentioned sort of luxury goods actually sounds like they may be unaffected, whereas supermarkets, less people are shopping at Waitrose now and they're going to Aldi. And that might be completely untrue. But I, I'd be interested if there's any things that sort of fall out that would be more widely applicable. The attitude to making profit in these times varies to which category you're operating in from a consumer perspective. So that might restrict how you can operate. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? As in the perception of you making profit. Yeah, the perception of you, how much profit you make. Interesting. I'm sure you've, you know, you can kind of feel it from media coverage in certain aspects. As an energy company, it's very easy to say, if you make too much profit today, it doesn't matter how they came about. You're probably struggling with a slight challenge around perception of the organization. This doesn't just translate to energy companies. It, it translates across different sectors. Fascinating. I think we've covered a lot of ground today, both. And I'm, I'm really conscious that you've kind of kindly given your time midday and we've got, you know, I'm sure you've got meetings after this and many things to be, to be looking at as well. And so I want to bring us to the final questions for today. And I, I'm going to ask these and ask for answers from both of you for each of them. So these are two questions that I ask all of my guests. And I, I love getting the similarities, differences, and everything in between. And so the first one is is about books. And I should probably couch this by saying, it, if actually you don't read books, you prefer podcasts or videos or magazines, because the number of guests I've had who, you know, maybe it's my wrong assumption that people go to books who actually tell me they prefer other mediums. So the question I'll lead with books, but take where you want is, is what is the book or books you've you've given to friends, colleagues, clients most, and, and why is it? Well, I'll, I'll go first then. I mean, I don't tend to give lots of people lots of books. and I'm not a huge, yeah, um, I, I love whatever it's called, good, From Good to Great, How You Build Great Businesses. It's a great book. But I'm not a great sort of reader of books that tell you how to run businesses because I I think you've just got to sort of experience it yourself and make your own mistakes. It's not to say there aren't lots of lessons to learn, but you know, the book that I've gifted most over the years is something I would never dream of giving to anybody now. When we first set up Populous, and I, I told you where I came from. I came from a con I used to work for the Concerted Party, so I come from a Concerted Party background. And um, and Andrew and I were both strong Conservatives at that point. I used to give every intern who joined Populous a copy of Atlas Shrugged, which is a book by a conservative, I guess, a libertarian, a libertarian um, philosopher, Ayn, R Ayn Rand, which is about what happens when the people who create wealth go on strike. It's a dystopian novel. It doesn't end well, but it seemed to me that it was important um, to emphasize the importance of wealth creation and how if you create jobs, create wealth, then the the whole society gets more wealthy. 
it then occurred to me that actually, what the hell was I doing trying to influence people's political views? We Did were you not- hit a brainwashing element in, <laughs> in this? <laughs> yeah, we, were, we were not. We were not setting up to run a political business that only cons- only employed uh, libertarian conservatives. So, so I quickly sort of grew out of that, but uh, I, I haven't replaced it with any other book lending habits. Well, just before we, uh, just before Manfred, I get, I get yours. Maybe I'll extend it to you know, to yourself. What is the book that's had the most impact on on you? Was it was it Good to Great? Was it uh, Atlas Shrugged? Is there another one? Good to Great has been a really helpful guide. Yeah, it, that was a really insightful book for me. Thank you for that, Michael. And, and Manfred, you know, I guess same question, but, but you know, to, to that point, broaden it out. What is the book that either has had the biggest impact on you or you've found yourself giving to, to people and, and why? Probably the book I've recommended most often. I probably got to say, I read a fiction novel and a business book and a fiction novel and a business book. That is how I structure my reading. And when I say reading, it's audible and I listen in the car don't do much reading at all now, or Blinkist as a quick snapshot of what's going on. But actually Blink is probably, I don't know, Malcolm Gladwell book around knowing things intuitively and engaging all parts of your brain. Because I think in consulting, we tend to go to just engage one half of the brain. And I think you you get better answers when you let the full brain be at work. And I think it fits with the yonder proposition. So that's why I probably often say you should read Blink. And I, I think for me, it, it's been over the years, different things. I get into like a trend. I get really fascinated by something and I read every business book on it. And then I go, what the hell did I do? And I don't believe in that anymore and read other things. Uh, Reimagined by Michael Peters was a book I really enjoyed. And I, I still recommend that to people today and they have to order it on, I don't know, it comes through funny ways these days because I think it's out of print. But it's an interesting read if you haven't read it. Amazing. No, two great recommendations. And just because you said you alternate fiction and nonfiction, I'm guilty of reading too many nonfiction books. So what's your go-to fiction book or series? It's always a book that I'm reading. At the moment, I'm reading a book called Stolen Children that a friend had recommended. And it's so gripping. It's incredible. It's literally, I have to focus on still driving because you get so into the book that you go, it might be good to concentrate on the road. Fantastic. Oh, well, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Um, and I'm also a big, big Audible fan. Like you say, when you're driving or, or walking, you can get through so much more doing it that way. I do like a book. I'm going on holiday next week and I, I find myself with fiction getting engrossed. That is the problem. You end up not wanting to do anything else because you are just reading that book. You want to see how it ends. No. You, should, you should read The Great Circle by Maggie. Maggie. Maggie, someone. Great. I'll, I'll send you I'll a link. Please do. It's a great, it's a really great book. Thank you both. As I say, these are being added to my holiday reading list. And our last question, and, and this may be a recap of things we've touched on. It may be something new, but you've got three people in front of you. One is a graduate just starting their, their consulting career. One is four to five years in, but they're kind of the, the middle of that sort of consulting grade structure. And then one is approaching, I would know it as partner, but in effect, a, a sort of senior leadership position in a consulting business. And and the question is just what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? If you're starting out, ask as many questions as you can. And don't think anyone thinks like you're not great if you ask questions. Just ask questions. I think what I was going to say, be curious, but also just don't feel you need to specialize in one particular area. Just 
try and get as much experience across the organization as you can. When you get to four or five years in, make a decision. Do you want to be a practitioner and really hone your skill in something? Or do you want to be a manager and take a slightly different route? Either is great. You might enjoy one much more than the other. Don't think the only route to life success is becoming a CEO would be my, because you might just enjoy consulting so much. And we always drop people into management structures, but in consulting, that's not necessarily how you could progress, right? So I, I think that a, that time in the business, you probably want to think about that a bit more because people just follow the, okay, I must become more senior manager. But actually, can I do just take more responsibility on projects? That's a real, and I mean, this is not directly answering your question, but it's a real challenge we face in the business. How do you make sure that people feel that they're advancing their career by just concentrating on delivering great client work and don't feel that somehow they're being left behind if they're not going into management? We have far too many people who want to go into management, enough, not, not enough people who really, really just want to keep honing their skills with clients. Um, and it's that love, isn't it? If, you, if that's what you love, that's what you should do. It's a really good point, both. If, if we had longer, I would open it up, but I'm going <laughs> to hold myself back. They'll be around to at some point when we can talk about that and the research of the nation. But it's a really good point as well. The success does not just come from being a leader or a CEO or, or a co-CEO. And then I guess for the final person, they, they, maybe this question is presumptive, but they are approaching that, that leadership position. So they've gone down that, I guess, management track. What advice would you give to someone on, I guess, making that jump and you know, making that next stage of success? Don't forget you still need to live. And if you don't think work is fun, you don't really enjoy it, really think about if you want to do this, because I guess we both feel quite similarly about the work, life, whatever. I enjoy my job, but if it wasn't like that, and I'm very happy to pick up the phone at any time of the day and the weekend. I love that. It doesn't bother me. If it does bother you, you might not want to go all the way to leadership because it will become part of your life and it can be intrusive and you might not enjoy that. But if you do, then definitely go for it. I don't think I'll add to that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I think a great point to finish on um, and a great place for us to finish both. So thank you for today. I've really enjoyed meeting you, finding out about Yonder. We covered a lot of ground in a short space of time. So thank you very much for that. Well, thanks uh, for having us. Yeah, thank you. And the last question is, obviously, if anyone wants to find out about yourselves, find out about Yonder, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Uh, LinkedIn is easiest. You go Manfred Abender, not many Manfreds full stop on LinkedIn. And the Manfred Abraham combination, I think, is pretty unique. Gosh, I, I can't remember what my LinkedIn um, address handle is. I don't know. Email me, michael.simmons at yonderconsulting.com. Fantastic. Well, Manfred, I'll put your LinkedIn. Michael, I'll put your email in the show notes so people Probably can find you. Probably know my email by now as well. Right? <laughs> Tell you what, we'll find both. We'll put LinkedIn, <laughs> we'll put emails. People can choose what they get. Uh, but no, but really enjoy this. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you and, and all the best for the rest of your week. Thanks. Thank you very Thank much. You nice to meet you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>